Yarra Libraries acknowledges the Wurundjeri as the traditional owners of the land this podcast was recorded on, pays tribute to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in Yarra, and gives respect to Elders past, present and emerging. You're listening to a Yarra Libraries podcast. If you're listening to this episode when it's freshly released, then you're listening during the annual 16 Days of Activism Against Gender-Based Violence. We're pleased to be able to bring you Jane Gilmore, discussing her book Fixed It, Violence and the Representation of Women in the Media, with award-winning author and journalist Margaret Simons. A warning, this episode will include discussions of acts of violence and the way they're reported, so please be aware of that before you continue. If you do feel you need to discuss anything related to domestic violence or assault, please don't hesitate to contact 1-800-RESPECT. This is an edited recording. Audience questions were summarised by Jane and Margaret for clarity and to ensure they could be heard both within the room and on the recording. Jane is a freelance journalist and the author of Fixed It, Violence and the Representation of Women in the Media. She has a Master's of Journalism from the University of Melbourne and a particular interest in feminism, media and data journalism. She was the founding editor of the King's Tribune. Tonight, she'll be discussing Fixed It with Margaret Simons. Margaret is an award-winning freelance journalist, as well as the author of 13 books and numerous articles and essays. Please join me in giving them both a hand. Thank you very much, Megan. And just before we get started, I just want to add something to the acknowledgement of country, which I started doing a while ago because I keep going to meetings in the city where they are obliged to do an acknowledgement of country before every meeting. And it just became like rote, this tokenistic da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Okay, now let's get started. So I was talking to Lydia Thorpe, who was the first Aboriginal woman elected to Victorian Parliament about this. And I said to her, what can we say? Instead, that is not tokenistic, and she said, I don't give a damn, except she didn't say damn, about your words. She said, pay the rent. So now when I do events like this, I do it myself, and I ask everybody else. Um, you can, it's so easy to set up on your phone. I donate just sometimes just a dollar to Aboriginal Legal Services or Grandmothers Against Removal. Pick a service run by and for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders and pay the rent. Imagine what would happen to this country if every time every person heard an acknowledgement of country, they paid $1 to a service for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. It would make an enormous difference. No pressure, but it would prove what a good person you are. <laughs> if any Meg. proof were needed. Um, welcome, everybody. Thanks for coming. It's my great pleasure tonight to be talking to Jane about this fierce and brave book, Fixed It. Um, I like so many things about it, and not only the mention of me. But but one of the things I like about it is that I think it explains journalism. It's actually a book about media literacy as much as anything, and that's close to my heart. So no pressure, Jane. The first question is, what is journalism, and how did you come to do it? Um, I was told by one of my respected teachers that the purpose of journalism is to describe society to itself, which is a line I have been using ever since I heard it because I thought it was summed up so perfectly what it is we are supposed to be doing. Um, I've also been taught that it is telling stories, that it's. I think it's also about helping people how to understand where they fit into a democracy and that they have a place in it. And I think that's particularly relevant at the moment where it feels like we don't, that we are powerless and helpless and the whole thing's kind of bullshit. That I think journalism has an obligation and a purpose of reminding us that that is not true, that citizens are functional pieces in our society that can make change. And... Sometimes journalism's role is to make change, sometimes it's to report on change being made by others, but it's always an integral part of that change, I think. Hmm. A terrific answer. Um, but I've been you, very well educated. But you became a journalist after an air guitar competition, so how does that square? Well, it was extremely important that we reported to the denizens of the bar who had won the air guitar competition, because at my then husband at the time was the person who won it, so he thought everybody should know. Um, this was... I, this is seriously how it happened. It was um, this bar that we used to go to um, quite not often at all. And um, 
there was the air guitar competition and the drinks afterwards, somebody said the, the, par, the bar should have its own newsletter to, to convey all the information about what's happening, what's going on, what events are on, who's bribing the judges, all that kind of stuff. Unlike most ideas that happen in pubs, this one actually went ahead. And I was just saying to Meg before, I just moved recently and I found a box of the King's Tribunes, the early ones, and I found a copy of that very first one, the double-sided A4 page. It's so bad. It's really terrible. The writing was abysmal. You would be horrified by the grammatical errors in this. It was awful, but that was... Um, in three weeks' time, it will be exactly 12 years ago that that was published. Mm. And that was 12 years later, here Here I am. Mm. Now you are one. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> now, you in a chapter that's to do with um, how the industry is male-dominated, always has been and remains so, you talk about a concept of Michael Shudson, who is a, a very eminent American scholar on journalism. He talks about social empathy journalism. I found it a fascinating concept when I first came across it and it was in the context of looking at how journalism is so gendered that these ideas um, of, you know, like the stereotypical journalist, hard-headed, investigative, tough guy, they're all very, all those characteristics that are associated with the stereotypical role of men, the stereotypically female characteristics of empathy and compassion and kindness and nurturing and being all sweet and passive and, you know, all that bullshit. Those things are not valued in journalism. In fact, they are considered to be a weakness. But then there was this concept of social empathy, which was very much related to what I was saying before, of if you are going to participate in a democracy, you have to have social empathy. Um, the example I use is um, if you're going to vote on welfare, if you have no understanding or empathy for people who are in need of welfare and you are voting for a government that says we should get rid of welfare, like, say, the current government. If you have no concept of what it's like to need welfare, to need constant medical attention, to need good public transport, to live out in the outer burbs where there's nothing and you can't get anywhere and your kids are so bored, how can you possibly participate in a democracy? So one of the jobs of journalism is to expand that social empathy, to explain to people what it is like to have a life unlike your own. And that reporting is not just investigative journalism, which is one of the few things that's properly funded now. It's it's reporting on people's lives and telling people's stories. And this is something that is not traditionally considered the proper <coughs> journalism, not serious journalism. Serious journalism is what men do. Women, when we write, we have our own little section for vaginas and cupcakes and we write about it over there and men don't ever have to read it. Men do the... The proper journalism. So you say this to journalists now and that's not true, that's not true, but it is true. When you look at, um, what was it, the Women in Media Report 2016, I think it was, 70% of the political journalism in Australia was done by men. 80% of the financial journalism, 95% of the sports journalism was done by men. Women were about 50% of the journalists in the country, but they were 78% of the people writing on celebrity and gossip. Now, this may still be journalism, but the the movement of women away from what they consider serious journalists, and then the next argument you get against that is, but what about people like Lee Sales, and what about people like Sarah Ferguson, and what about Laura Tingle, and what about Catherine Murphy? And yes, they are all fabulous journalists, but they are the exception that proves the rules. They are exceptional journalists. There are so many male journalists that I could name if we weren't being recorded right now who are mediocre journalists but are at the top of their field. I don't know any mediocre women who are at the top of their field. I know exceptional women who are. Hmm. Thanks, Jane. Now, probably most people who are here know that the um, essential idea behind Fixed It is to take media stories, mainly the headlines, and by fixing them show up the assumptions that lie beneath them. So we've got a nice little example here on page six. The original headline said, Townsville police say selfie could have led to alleged stabbing murder. And Jane fixed it to read, Townsville police say man's decision to stab a woman calls, caused alleged stabbing murder. This is something that I did before I had been taught about subjudice contempt. Don't worry, we'll get to subjudice. <laughs> we, we probably won't get to subjudice contempt. We'll explain that later if people really want to know. I'm going to read a little bit of this. 
Um, there have been hundreds of headlines in Fixed It over time. Drunk teenagers getting themselves raped, lying sex workers, houses committing rape, brooms beating women, loving fathers killing their children, Susan Sarandon being old in public, broken hearts causing murder, women too stupid to understand superannuation, Bill Clinton's wife running for president. 40-year-old men in sexual relationships with 12-year-old girls, the Prime Minister of England's legs, women too old to be hot while playing football, domestic violence stunts, sex romps killing MPs, countless invisible murderers and endless victim blaming. So tell us about how you came to fix headlines. How did it all happen? Um, I got angry on a tram once which is not the only time that's ever happened, obviously. Um, <laughs> this started well before, so that I think the first headline, that, one, that Townsville one, was 2015. The anger with the media and the way they reported men's violence against women started, I think, when with the way Tracy Connolly's murder was reported. So I don't know how many of you remember her. She was a woman who was killed in St Kilda. It was about eight months after Jill Ma was murdered. And it was reported on by every single major publication in the country and every single one of them used some variation of St Kilda prostitute killed. She was not named. She was not just a prostitute. I couldn't even call her a sex worker back then. She wasn't just a prostitute. She was a St Kilda prostitute. So everybody knew what that meant. She was utterly dehumanised. And in the initial reporting on it, I think there was one I found where they didn't actually get to her name until the third paragraph. She was still just this and killed a prostitute. She was, it was revolting. Um, and I wrote something about it then that um, did get some reaction, which was good, and then people started going and doing what they did with Jill. Remember when Jill was killed and there was that beautiful photo and she was instantly human because she was a, and I'm not disparaging her at all or what happened to her, but she was a nice middle-class white woman. And so, and she wasn't killed by her husband. She was killed by a stranger. So that was partly why that it was everything that is so unlikely to happen and everything that ties into all those fears. So that was reported that way. Tracy was a sex worker. She wasn't a real person. She wasn't important. She was older. She was suffering the effects of the, the life that she had led well before she got into sex work and it was ignored. And I couldn't find a way to cut through on this. I was writing a lot about it at the time and getting nowhere. That fix, that Townsville Police one. Now, certainly even then I was thinking if the Townsville Police are talking to journalists when this murder happened yesterday and saying that the selfie caused, what the hell is going on in Townsville? Wow. <laughs> but also, obviously, selfies don't cause murder. So I was just... It was a, one of those apps on your phone, you know, the ones to make you look 10 kilos lighter and 10 years younger. I just did it on that and threw it out to social media and, like, the next time I turned on my phone, it almost exploded in my hand and it was quite literally a picture is worth a 1,000 words because I had been writing a 1,000-word articles on this for years and got nowhere and that picture got more attention than everything else I had written combined and it from there, it just went from there. I was very disorganised about it at first. Finally, got a lot more organised, and that was when I really started surprising myself by the people that were there. Because when I first started doing it, I was searching all the News Corp sites, looking because I assumed that that's where the bad headlines would be. Then I started using Google alerts, and suddenly, hi ABC, how are you doing? All the time. And I was horrified by this. And again, the assumptions that I had made, oh, it's just the tabloid journalists that do this. No, it's not. It is a systemic problem that exists in every single publication in the country. Mm. And what sort of reaction did you get from all those male journalists or all those journalists? <laughs> oh, they love me so much. Um, I. It's not uncommon that I get contacted from contacted by the journalist who wrote the article saying, oh, thank you, thank you so much. I had a big fight with my editor about it and was overruled and this was why very early on I was take I take the journalist byline out of it, the image when I use it, because journalists almost never write their own headlines and what was going on at the beginning was because most people didn't know that, the journalist's name would be on the picture and they'd go straight after them on Twitter and there's this 
poor cadet journalist going, but I, I, I didn't, I don't, I can't say that my editor, wow, what do I do? So I started taking their names out. And so they will often come to me and say, thank you. Um, there is a story in the book that one came to me that she'd been in touch with me a few times that is one of my favourite stories. Um, this editor that she'd been fighting with over a couple of headlines was started to type the headline and then went, oh, hang on, the bloody feminist from the internet's going to yell at me again. <laughs> Deleted it and rewrote it. And I think, well, if annoying feminists from the internet is something that's going to change, well, that, I'll take that. You know, I would rather, no, I won't do it that way because it's wrong, but I'll take annoying feminists from the internet will yell at me because, yes, I will. Mm. Um, once, oh, that was when I was, we were working for Uncovered, we did have a editor get in touch to say, well, how can we do it better? Um, I did have an editor from another publication get in touch with me and say, hey, listen, thanks. But next time, can you just get in touch with me and tell me and I'll change it myself instead of, like, doing this public thing that's really embarrassing? And I went, yeah, dude, no, that's not how it works. Be better and then I won't have to. Um, he's not and I have had to again. <laughs> <laughs> now, I'm just going to read a few more of these headlines because um, I think it's it's such a clever and witty and telling way of um, showing what media does often without being aware of it. So we have them from the Savannah Morning News, Troubled Port Wentworth Marriage Ends in Murder, which was rewritten as Man with History of Domestic Violence Murders Wife. You can see the assumptions. Um, there's uh, Love Made Me Do It, Man Shoves Hose Down Woman's Throat. And it was rewritten as Man Convicted of Assault After Shoving Hose Down Ex-Partner's Throat. Um, spurned lover punches his girlfriend in the face when she, when she turns down marriage proposal. And the fix was, violent man punches his girlfriend in the face because he chose to commit assault. So we're really addressing there the disappearance of the perpetrator, aren't we, in domestic violence? It's, it's a thing that um, I always say the longer name for fixed it is um, blameable victims and invisible perpetrators because there's this... Um, one of these things happens in almost every headline of men's violence against women. Either the perpetrator is erased, the victim is erased, or she is blamed. One of those three things. You, so two, occasionally they manage to get all three into one, which is, I think, it's like that art. takes work. It's an art. Um, but it's, <laughs> these are the, it's, that constantly come up. So it's a whole lot of different ways of doing it, but they're the three things that underpin almost all of the, the fixes that I do. Mm. Um, and you talked earlier on about journalism being describing society to itself. Don't know where you got that from, but um, where does where does family violence, domestic violence, violence against women fit into that job? See, this is so much easier when it's not you, and I can just say, "Well, as Margaret Simons has said to me, um, as most of you, I think, know, and as Margaret Simons has said to me, it is not. It is mostly treated as a crime issue." It is not. It is the biggest health, human rights, justice, economic, productivity, family, social, so many different things. So as far as journalism goes, when you put all those topics together, it's possibly the biggest story that we can cover. Mm. Um, it causes the amount of damage that it causes. So we, we talk about the one woman a week that's murdered. There is a call made to police every two minutes in Australia for a family violence matter and we know that about somewhere between 20 and 30% of family violence incidents are reported to the police. So that means, I think I did the math on this once, it works out to about every 20 seconds on average in Australia, somewhere a woman is being abused. That we know next week there is a woman somewhere in Australia who will be dead next week. And the only thing we don't know about her is her name. But we know that she's being abused, we know that she is terrified, and we know that she will be dead next week. And I, the other thing that I can absolutely tell you about that is if she is killed by her husband, it, the story might last maybe three hours if it's reported at all. And it'll be somewhere down the bottom of the websites, it'll be low on social media. If she's killed by a man who she doesn't know, it'll be very high, there'll be a huge outcry. You are more likely to die in your cars on your way home from a feminist event at the library than you are to be killed by a man you don't know. The most dangerous place a woman can be is at home on a Saturday night at 11 o'clock with a man who claims to love her. These are things that we say all the time and journalism is not doing its job when I keep saying this to people and they go, really? And I think, how are, 
how is this not just common knowledge? But it's not and journalism is how we find out about lives unlike our own. If we are not living with that kind of violence, if we're not living with the sort of information that I have access to and I understand not everybody can do this all the time because, you know, there's, people have other things to do. I get that. So journalism's job is to say this is what's going on and that it is not just a crime issue. In fact, most of it isn't criminal. And the solution to it mostly isn't criminal. But those human rights issues and the health issues and the economic issues and the productivity issues that affect the entire country, most people don't even know that they're a thing. Just expand on that most of it isn't criminal, Jane, because I think that's something that a lot of people don't realise. Um, so a lot of domestic abuse at the moment in Australia isn't criminalised. I think they're still working on um, coercive control as uh, finding a way to criminalise it, but it's incredibly difficult to legislate against that kind of behaviour because that kind of behaviour can consist of nothing more than a look. And I've talked to survivors who have said that they would be reduced to unable to move, thinking they're about to have a heart attack level of terror by a look. Now, how do you criminalise that? So um, when we talk about domestic abuse, and it's actually in Jess Hill's book, um, this is one of those things that we've always had a problem with what wording do we use. Domestic violence sounds nice. You know, domestic has, a, has good connotations to it. Intimate terrorism is a much better description of it, but it really only applies to partner violence, whereas violence that happens in the home has indirect victims that can go very wide. So friends, family, pets, not just we're not just talking children. There is a huge circle of people affected by abuse inside a home and it can happen between any different combination of family members. Financial side of it, which is another huge aspect of that coercion and control, is again difficult to criminalise. And how do you punish it? Do you take the money back? Do you send somebody to prison if somebody is already suffering financially and they're unemployed and they are financially dependent on somebody? Is the solution to their financial abuse to incarcerate the man who is at least putting a roof over their head and, and some food in the kid's mouth? So as a criminal solution to these things, um, violent men who go to prison usually come out more violent than when they went in. Obviously, I'm not saying that, oh, we should just let them off the hook and give them a pat on the head in a counselling session and everything will be fine. I'm saying that the problem is far more complex than the criminal justice system can deal with. And so the solution has to be far more complex than just the criminal justice system. And again, I think it is the job of journalists to be talking about this and making this part of the public debate because you see it all the time on comment sections when you're stupid enough to read them. <laughs> Reports on somebody that's been sentenced to something, that's not long enough. Whatever he's done, it's not long enough. He should be locked up forever. And I understand the emotional reaction to that. But I wonder what we're looking for. The, the, the immediate emotional response for wanting retribution for wrongs done when you have offended against the way we want our society to be. We want retribution for that. But if we have a choice between retribution and change, because maybe you can't have both, which one do we choose? Mm -hmm. Now, the answer to that is a lot more complicated than we've got time for now, but these are the questions that I think journalists should be asking, and they're not. They're, when they're reporting on domestic violence <coughs> or domestic abuse, they are reporting on the physical, criminal aspect of it almost exclusively. And as a freelance journalist who pitches this kind of stuff a lot, it is so difficult to get the more complex stories accepted by editors anywhere because the thing they keep telling me, and I... I just I still don't even know how to respond to this. Our oh, domestic violence, we've done that. Mm. Mm. Like we've done bank robbery and yeah. no, we've done that. Sorry. Yeah. Have that you got a new angle? Now the other thing that rises up like a bubble every time this topic is raised is not all men. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about that, Jane. <clears throat> Apparently, you might be surprised to know not all men are violent. As I am told every time I say a man has been violent and I take a deep breath and I think, can I be bothered? And the, usually the answer is no. Every now and again, I will, I've actually got a link saved somewhere. I'll just send a link to a debunking of the not all men thing. But basically what they're saying when they're saying not all men is not me. 
I'm not violent. You're saying men are violent and I'm a man and I'm the centre of every story that's ever been written. So when you're saying men are violent, you're saying I'm violent, that's insulting, I'm furious. And the thing I'm going to do now is send you a message on social media telling you I'm going to kill you to prove that I'm not violent. (laughs) Good point, dude, well argued. It's an idiotic argument. Um, The only people I know of who actually believe that all men are violent are violent men. And... The, the best way I've found to describe this is um, an article that I don't think I did actually get published because domestic, we've already done domestic violence. But why sexist jokes are a problem. Um, if you are a good bloke who does not, you know, you are the, one of the not all men who would never commit violence, you're a good bloke, you would never be violent to anybody, you are not going to hear a sexist joke and go home and kill your wife. I mean, obviously. But... If you are a violent man and you have tendencies to go home and be violent anyway and you are in a group of men and somebody makes a joke about violence, say it's eight men. So one of the things I've done statistically, if you know eight Australian men, you know a rapist. There's a fun thought. Eight men in a group. One of them makes a sexist joke. One of them is a violent man. The other other six are not. All of them laugh. The violent man hears all eight men laughing and thinks they're all like me. I don't do this in front of anybody because they never do. I don't tell anybody that I do this because they never do. So when every other man is reacting to this as a joke and thinking it's funny the way I do, they're doing it because they're like me. So in that group of eight, then the next scenario comes up. One guy says, hey, mate, no, not okay. He's whipped. He's sucking up. He's after, you know, he's just, he's an idiot. He's whatever insults they use. Two guys do it. What's going on there? Three do it. Now I'm starting to get worried. All seven of them say to the guy, or all six of the the independent guys say to the guy who made the joke, dude, no, not cool. Then what does the one violent guy think? How can he possibly normalise his behaviour and think everybody is like me if everybody in that group is saying that's not okay? This is an argument that I have been having for years now of why this sexist joke is dangerous. It's not because it turns good men into violent men, it's because it normalises violence for violent men. And as I said, one in every eight Australian men, sorry, if you know eight Australian men, you know a rapist. If you know three Australian men, you know a man who has been abusive to to a female partner at some point. Mm. Scary statistics, very scary statistics. Now, this is all pretty grim stuff, but... This book is also very funny (laughs) in places. And I'm going to read a funny bit now. This is about the politics of gender or specifically women in politics and and how they get treated by the media. Never mind Brexit, who won Legxit? Ran the headline on a huge front, um, on huge font down the left-hand side of the Daily Mail's front cover. On the right-hand side was a photo of Theresa May and Nicola Sturgeon with their legs right there, joining their feet to their hips, as women's legs are wont to do when their owners are after attention. The article that followed this headline, entitled Finest Weapons at Their Command, Those Pins, discussed the political significance of Nicola Sturgeon's clothes and shapely shanks. The nail polish worn by the vicar's daughter, Theresa May, got its own paragraph. And then there was this. But what stands out here are the legs and the vast expanse on show. There is no doubt that both women consider their pins to be the finest weapon in their physical arsenal. Consequently, both have been unleashed. It's really hard to believe that sort of thing gets written, but I'm not accusing you of making it up. I don't think I could if I tried. (laughs) Um, To be fair, this was about Brexit. So if you are going to report on the financial, legal, geopolitical ramifications of Brexit, it's probably, and you're the Daily Mail, look, it's a bit above your pay grade. So (laughs) I get why that, what else could they do? Maybe they could have hired a freelancer. I don't know, or just shut the hell up. (laughs) Um, It's, it was, that I think was one of the worst I saw. Um, But it, Oh, there was also that one about Barack Obama and Julia Gillard touching bottoms. Oh, and that was written in Australia. Yay us. You know, we've, mm-hmm. we've got them too. Um, it astounded me, though, once I really started looking into this, the way women in politics are still written about. You know, we think, oh, but it's not like that now. 
<laughs> I mean, it's, but, and it's not just Alan Jones, you know. It's, it's everywhere. The way Jacinda Ardern is described is about how she looks. Um, the, another one that I thought was hilarious was um, the, um, when Hillary Clinton was running, when Bill Clinton's wife was running for the presidency. Um, she had one child and one grandchild. When Mitt Romney was running, he had 18 grandchildren. No one said anything about, oh, maybe he should be at home looking after the grandkiddies. There were, I think, three articles with headlines along the lines of the pros and cons of President Grandma. One grandchild. She's probably got enough resources to get some help if she needs it, you know. But one grandchild. Mitt Romney's 18 was not a problem at all. And it didn't seem to occur to anyone that this was a double standard. Oh, no, we, we have to take it seriously. Being a grandmother could affect her decision-making. What if we've got to go to war? How can she possibly make decisions about going to war if she has a grandchild? And, like, they believed that. It was a genuine argument. This was a discussion that went on on, on CNN, I think it was, for 20 minutes. And nobody went, what is wrong with us? They actually had this discussion and took it... I, 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 I read a whole book about this and I'm still lost for words. <laughs> and still angry about it and good on you. Um, what's it been like being um, somebody who's come into journalism through the air guitar competition, an unconventional <laughs> path, and straight away, almost before you got your feet under the desk, criticising journalists? Well, I think it takes a certain amount of arrogance to do that, really, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, there was an enormous amount I didn't know, so I can understand why the early criticisms were dismissed, and rightly so in some cases. But the thing that that drove me to do was find out more so that I could make justifiable criticisms. Um, so now it's kind of funny when they tell me that I don't know what it's like to be a journalist and I don't know anything about journalism, and I think, actually, you know what, you can bite me because I do. Um, and apparently at times I know more than you do, Mr. Criticism Journalist Man. Um, it's, I am aware that there are certain parts of journalism that I haven't done, court reporting being the main one, and I've sat in courts often enough to know what an incredibly difficult job that is. I mean, it's indescribable, and I don't think I could do it if I tried. So I have a lot more sympathy for journalists that I criticise now than I used to, um, Maybe I'm not quite as arrogant as I used to be about it. But it matters more to me now because, because having been a journalist myself for so long and actually knowing more about it, I am more passionate about it than I was when I created my own publication to be a journalist. It's, I, I love journalism. I love most journalists. I, I feel very strongly about it and about how important it is and it upsets me more when I see it go so wrong, I think, because it matters more to me. So it's it's been a it's been an interesting twelve years. So is there any hope? I was talking about this last night. Um, for those of you who haven't finished the book yet, uh, there is a chapter at the end because the edit, my editor said to me, "No, you can't just write all this terrible, terrible stuff and then just leave people going, oh God." have a chapter at the end that says, but here is reason for hope. And I just finished writing the rest of it and I went, there is no hope. The world is going to end. <laughs> Everything is terrible. Go away. And she went, why don't I come back in a week or two? <laughs> and so she came back in a week or two and said, so how are you going? I went, everything is terrible. I'm going to bed. And she went, right, okay. I really didn't realise how much writing the book and the lead up to it, how much damage it did to me. And I think if any of my friends had known or if I had been willing to tell them, probably a good thing I didn't because I think they would have stopped me um, and the book would never have been done. But it took – there are spelling mistakes in that final chapter because it took so long for me to be able to write it. So the first version of that final chapter I handed over and she read it and she went, this is hopeful. <laughs> this is what you think is hopeful? No, no, try again. And it was really like – two or three days before it had to go to the printer or we were going to miss the deadline that I finally managed to get something of, yes, okay, there is – I can see some light at the end of the tunnel now. Um, and it was a conversation with my mother that did it. Um, we were sitting out in my backyard having a glass of wine and she was talking about how she could remember a, ho a horse and cart 
would come and deliver bottles of milk to her house when she was a child. And I was just thinking, that, I mean, that just blew my mind. There she was remembering that, sitting there with our phones on the table that have access to more information than Bill Clinton had when he was president. When she got married, the marriage bar was still in place and rape and marriage was still legal. When she got divorced, women who had not been married were not entitled to um, welfare. There was uh, no single parent's pension for anyone unless you had been widowed, I think, originally. And we were just talking about some of this stuff and I went, I had forgotten how much had changed in my lifetime, how much had changed. And then thinking about my daughter who kept coming out telling us that we should stop drinking so much. <laughs> Maybe that will be one of the things that will change. <laughs> um, but what will happen in her lifetime, how much will change? And thinking about the things in journalism that have changed, the um, the good guy reporting, that was a moment that I went, yes, that's something to hang on to. So remember, if a man killed his wife and children, it would be, it was every single story would have a quote from somebody saying what a good guy he was. He was a loving father. He was a great husband. He was such a good bloke. He was loved on the footy field. But the, the loving father and the caring husband who just killed his wife and children. Now... I really think that if you kill your children, you pretty much get voted off the Caring Father Island. Off you go. You're done. This went on every single case that I went back through over and over again. Every single publication in the country would have some version of this. And after some considerable degree of pushing, Media Watch finally ran a segment on it. And I have not seen that level of good guy reporting since that Media Watch segment. Mm. In fact, the next man who was reported on who did this was um, David, what's his name, who killed the t teenagers in Sydney. And the Daily Telegraph ran a huge photo of him with the word coward, huge big letters underneath it. Nobody called him a good guy or if they did, no journalist reported on it. I, didn't see, I couldn't find it and I went looking. And in the cases since then where it's happened – Every now and again there might be a touch of it, but it just doesn't come up anymore. And the other one that I've noticed that's different is um, when something happens to a woman and police tell women to stay home because that's where you'll be safe. Don't go out. Don't walk. If you just stop walking, you'll be fine. <laughs> don't have jobs. Don't have friends. Don't have lives. Stay home where you are. Most chance of being killed if you have a boyfriend, you know. Um, that one stopped as well, and that was in response to public pressure. Now, that story about the, the editor changing his headline because of the annoying feminist from the internet, that's not just because of me. If it was just me and nobody else was doing anything about it, it would not have had any effect whatsoever. It is a co combination of a huge amount of voices working together, and this is, again, where I found that sense of hope is collective action, that all those things that we were talking, that Mum and I were talking about, that have changed in her lifetime, changed because of collective action, because enough people got together and said, "This is bullshit, and we will not put up with it anymore." And I think that is where collective action still has power. And in fact, now these days, it's so much easier that you, we have done it. We have put twenty-five thousand people in front of Parliament House in a couple of hours when it matters enough, and we can still do that, and we are still doing that, and it does make change. And those things that were in place when my mother was getting married and, and having her child have changed because of collective action, mostly of women. So, you know, women give me hope. Feminists particularly, feminist women give me hope. Collective action from feminist women against systemic disadvantage is, I think, the only thing that will change the world. Mm -hmm. And I look forward to it. Now, I'm going to open it to questions from the floor very soon now to get your questions ready. But I'd like to know, Jane, what next for you? Who are you going to annoy next? <laughs> <laughs> you say that like I'm not going to keep annoying the journalists. Um, I'm sure you'll keep annoying the journalists. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have a few things in mind. Um, as I've said to you before, and you concur, writing is a form of self-harm that I don't appear to be able to give up. So I have already started working on the next book. Um, it's where that book was sort of looking at the, the macro issues of reporting on men's violence against women. This one's going to be on the micro issues to very specific cases and how they played out. Um, so I'm looking forward to doing my head in with that one over the next year or so. I've got 
the journalism that I love so much that I'm having so much trouble doing because we've done domestic violence and I find it difficult to write about things that I don't think matter. So looking for ways of of telling those stories that feel new, of, of talking about the complexities, of talking about the things that we haven't talked about. We spent so long convincing people that domestic abuse was a thing. Now I think the next step is explaining to people how complex it is and talking about a much more complex solution. So I think that should keep me busy for a little while. Oh, just a little while. I would have thought so too. Okay, so I'm going to open it to the floor, but just a couple of things I want to say first off. The usual thing, questions please, not statements or speeches. Um, the other thing is that quite often um, when I've done other events at which we've been talking about domestic violence, quite often there are survivor stories in the audience. We're not equipped, we're journalists, not not therapists or, or, worker, or support workers, um, and this is not the appropriate sort of supportive environment in which survivor stories can be adequately dealt with. So I would ask, please, uh, we can refer you to appropriate services of help, but um, this is not the place to share a survivor story. Um, we have seen women, uh, victims and survivors, left very exposed and vulnerable after doing that. So um, please just bear that in mind. Um, now, we've stayed, I think, in mostly safe places as far as what we're talking about. You know, you all knew what we were going to be talking about. Just if the questions start getting a bit more specific, if you're finding it a bit much, I know we always say, oh, you can get up and leave, but that is such a difficult thing to do when you're stuck in the middle of a crowd and you're feeling really edgy. Pull out your phone and everybody's going to think you're live tweeting and just read Facebook or something for a while and that way you don't, nobody has to know and you can just switch off. Or you could also, you know, like live tweet it and tell everyone how fabulous I am. You can do that too. And, and Jane, if people do want to seek help? Uh, 1-800-RESPECT, I guess. Yeah, 1-800-RESPECT. Um, some of the state-based ones may be better, but 1-800-RESPECT is where we're meant to go. So, yes, yeah. do that. Okay. Okay, so questions for Jane. So the question was about consent and how the media can can discuss the complex. Well, it's not consent is not complex, um, but how we can talk about how to ask consent, how to understand whether or not it's been given. Um, well, I think they could start by understanding it themselves. So often I've seen reports where clearly the journalist themselves doesn't understand consent. So there's maybe something that we could do with the education level of journalists so that they understand consent. So I think there's <laughs> there's so many different things that we could be doing there. So it would be starting with um, training all journalists to do this properly so that when they're writing about it, they are not writing about it as if consent is something that is a grey area because it is not a grey area ever. And it should never be referred to that way. It should be really, really clear to people what it is, what it looks like, how you ask for it. And one of the things that I was involved in in New South Wales was talking about, well, how do we get men to feel good about this? And I'm like... <laughs> um, okay, you're going to have to ask me that question again because how do we get men to feel good about knowing that the person they're having sex with is consenting to it. <laughs> so the fact that we have to, that somebody has to, and this was a government employee had to ask this question about a public awareness campaign. That, that had to happen. And they were asking me this question seriously. Then again, I go back to that social empathy aspect of journalism. That is something we need to be talking about, not just defining what consent is, but talking about why it is so difficult to have this conversation, why why are so many particularly men confused about it? Why are so many particularly girls afraid of uh, withdrawing it? It's and it's not always just the fear of violence. Sometimes it is, but there, from my understanding of it, and I've spoken to a couple of experts about this, um, girls are also feeling an enormous amount of pressure that their ability to say no is compromised that their ability to feel confident in their own agency over their own body is compromised. And this goes back to the systemic issues that I was talking about before, that, um, that it is education, it's health, it's a human rights issue, it's so many things that should be so important to so many people and appear to be, oh, that's not a story, unless it's happened to somebody famous. Oh, is there a celebrity involved? Cool, that's a story. But 
I think I think maybe, you know, one of the things we need to go back to is go back to the audiences and say, well, look, you know, tell the publications that you read that you want more of these kind of things. When you see somebody doing this kind of journalism and they do it well, make sure the publication that's paid them knows about it, knows that they, that you really like that and that you want more of that kind of story that, because that kind of thing really does make a difference. Mm, it does. And um, there's a question at the back there. <laughs> No, I'll, I'll just repeat the question. Yep. Um, so the question was about a particular headline um, involving a man who killed a woman in a car in front of their child and the headline was something along the lines of child unharmed, whereas, of course, the harm would have been profound. I think that's the main point, Jane. Yeah. So I think there's a couple of things there. Firstly, um, it is, again, that focus of abuse as only physical. So unharmed means physically not hurt. And obviously you're right in saying that harm has an enormous range of harms that can happen. Journalists that are trained to report on crime are talking about physical harm because that's usually the only thing that is criminalised. There's also the issue that um, particularly in early reporting on those kind of crimes, it's very difficult to get information. Um, police are understandably wary of journalists, so they are, they're blocking any attempts by journalists to talk to anybody and being very careful about the details they hand out with good reason. But everybody wants to know what happened because particularly something like that, it's a terrible crime. So there's these competing pressures of audiences want to know what happened and why it happened and police don't want journalists talking about what happened or why it happened because at that stage they certainly don't know. A, a complex murder investigation can take years. So within 12 hours they they probably have some theories like the selfie, but they can't be talking about it. So all these competing pressures end up in an enormous amount of rubbish appearing in the media and it's um, rehashing of police media releases. So if you go onto the police media website, it's open to the public, you can read almost word for word what appears in the Age and the Herald Sun in their crime section about a crime that's happened in the last 24 hours. And that gets into some interesting stuff too because I have such a problem with the police media unit on that basis. Um, the whole African gangs thing came out of the fact that police media were reporting to journalists that African youths of African appearance were committing crimes. And when I was working at The Age, they did this and I had a discussion with my editor about my feelings on this and was told to write the story anyway. So I rang police media back and said, okay, I'm writing the story. Can you tell me how many use of Caucasian appearance held up a BP last night. Oh, we don't have that information. Can you tell me how many BPs were held up last night? Oh, we don't have that information. Can you tell me how many youths of Caucasian appearance were arrested last night? We don't have that information. So we are, journalists are given the information by police and publish what they're given. So the problem is in what police are doing and they're doing it for their own interests and in journalists accepting that and some would say not having the time and resources. I would say not making the effort to find out more and report in ways that is not going to compromise the investigation, which can be done. As you say, thinking about it, things like, yes, the child was, of course, harmed, those kind of things. I agree with you. It's a very long-winded way of saying, yes, you're right, so I could have just done that. Okay. Any other questions? Yes, in the middle here. So the question is, how do we make newsrooms better? Um, I think it's very difficult for any individual journalist to do and I know um, I know what it's like, as I said, that discussion I had with the editor about reporting on the use of African appearance. I lost that fight and I had to report the way it was meant to be, the way he wanted it reported because if I had not, there's 15 people lined up outside the door waiting for my job. So I completely understand why it is difficult for a single journalist to do this. Um, but the value of collective journalism, so um, groups like Women in Media, um, those kind of, where you can group together and say collectively we are now asking you to do this. When you ask people who have less to lose, people who have seniority and authority to go into those organisations and discuss this and somebody who will be taken seriously. Now, I can't walk into the News Corp newsroom and tell them how to do it properly because they're just going to start throwing things at me. You probably could. They'd probably throw things at you too. But there are some people who could. So I think there are a lot of different ways that we could do that. Um, 
but I think it's in inside newsrooms themselves, it's change coming from inside from people in a position of seniority who don't have to risk as much as, say, a young cadet journalist does who's basically risking their career. From the outside of journalism, the answer is very, very clear. Social media pushback from the readers because the ones that have subscribers, particularly if you are a subscriber, and this is the thing, you know, people say don't subscribe to News Corp. Subscribe to News Corp because then when you complain, you have a real power to say to them, I am one of your subscribers. I am paying for your journalism, which they do occasionally do. And they even do it well sometimes. I am one of your subscribers and I do not want you doing this news like this. Or I want you to explain to me why you are doing news like this. You can make an enormous difference in that way. But even if you can't bring yourself to subscribe, certainly on social media, responding to it. This is not how the sort of journalism we want. Now, if one or two annoying feminists do it, they won't pay any attention. If 10 do, they may not pay too much attention. If a 1,000 do, they are forced to listen. Even if they don't like it, even if it is that guy going, bloody woman from the internet is going to complain again, we'll have to redo it. If being afraid of bloody women on the internet is enough to make them change, then I will take that as a reason. And hopefully the next generation will come through and and those traditions will be broken because a lot of it is the, well, that's how we've always done it, so that's how we're going to keep doing it. Mm-hmm. So a lot of it is is breaking that, but I think it's a very, very difficult thing for a single person to do in a newsroom that is resistant to that kind of change with no help. Very hard. Well, I'm afraid we're out of time, but not out of time to buy this book, which you should definitely do, and Jane will sign it for you, I'm sure. Um, it is a groundbreaking book in lots of ways. As I said at the beginning, it's fierce, it's brave, it's beautifully written, and um, we would be a better country and a better profession if all journalists read it, but also all audiences for journalism. I'm just going to leave you with the uh, the fixed it that's on the cover. The original woman was flirty and very friendly in the hours before she was allegedly raped. And that was fixed to man accused of rape says alleged victim chatted to people at party. <laughs> um, so thank you all very much for coming. And I would also like to, I've done this a few, quite a few times and I always, you know, my, my person who's on stage making sure that I don't just ramble incoherently for an hour at you normally gets a thank you. In this particular case, this book quite genuinely would not have happened without Meg. She was the one who taught me how to be a journalist, taught me how to write and and showed me how to write a book. So thank you, not just for tonight, but also for the fact that the book was published. Well, thank you for writing it. (laughs) That was Jane Gilmore and Margaret Simons discussing Jane's book, Fixed It, Violence and the Representation of Women in the Media, at Bagungananian North Fitzroy Library earlier this year. Thank you to both speakers and to Neighbourhood Books for being there on the night. We run regular author talks at all branches of Yarra Libraries, so please keep an eye on our website. If you're keen to read Fixed It, or any of the titles we've recommended in our show notes, please pop into your local branch or place a reservation online. Meanwhile, Yarra Libraries would love to help you with your holiday shopping, but let's face it, we just get everyone books. Everyone. That could work, right? Our theme song is Ad End by Broke for Free. <laughs>